This is Proxilla Radio, the UK's first dedicated progressive rock music radio network. You're listening to Tabletop Genesis, a podcast by Genesis fans for Genesis fans. Welcome. This is Mike Lord, your trusty host of Tabletop Genesis, and we are here to talk about the album Foxtrot, one of the classics. Or am I giving the game away by saying classic already? Uh, as I said, I'm Mike Lord, and let's introduce ourselves to our listeners out there. Hello, everyone. This is Ellie. Hi, this is Simon Godfrey. Uh, this is Gabble Raget. <laughs> this is Tom Roche of Sticks Enterprises. Oh, we've got we've got a lot of people working for the band uh, here now, or working for genetic control. So, well, this is a classic album of Genesis, Foxtrot. You know, it has has some relatively good songs on it. I guess you could say, yeah, a couple that are relatively semi-important to the career of Genesis moving forward from this point. So, Simon, why don't we talk about what is in the Wikipedia entry for this band? Foxtrot is the fourth studio album from the English rock band Genesis, released in October of 1972 on Charisma Records. The album was recorded following the tour in support of their previous album, Nursery Crime. Side 2 features Supper's Ready, I'm not entirely sure if you're aware of this track, (laughs) a 23-minute song that is considered one of the band's greatest compositions. Foxtrot was the band's greatest commercial and critical success at the time of its release, reaching number 12 in the UK and receiving largely positive reviews. As with their previous two albums, Foxtrot failed to chart in the United States. Shame on you. Um, A single from the album, Watcher of the Skies, was released as a single in October of 1972. Foxtrot was reissued with a new stereo and 5.1 surround mix as part of their 2008 Genesis 1970-1975 box set. Excellent. I think one thing we, we should point out here is that the members of the band were basically 22 years old at the time this album came out. And so I think we have to remember when we put ourselves in in their shoes at this point, and really for any album moving forward or backwards from here, just how young they were when this was going on. I mean, this is, you know, in the U.S., they were just able to drink the year before. (laughs) You know, it's, it's the type of thing that it's easy to forget that Genesis, because they started recording so young, and Gabriel left in 75 when he was 25 years old. Just how young and, you know, sheltered, naive, uh, kind of in their own world they could have been at this point. Uh, it was, it's just something that it amazes me that they were able to make music like this at such a young age. The lyrics too. Yes. I think that, you know, the lyrics of, of this album are a step above where we were at with nursery crime and i think that the success of this album especially in the in the uk goes towards their kind of relentless touring that they did putting themselves out in front of audiences and kind of again doing it the i'll say the old-fashioned way of building an audience putting themselves out there and getting people to realize oh this band has something to say 
Well, it was very interesting you made mention of that because one of the uh, the things that um, I did prior to this podcast was, and I think like everybody else, we do a little bit of homework yes. before mm. each podcast. So we, we at least know 30% of what we're talking about. <laughs> right. Really. Um, and I was looking at the, the DVDs that came mm. with the box set. Right. So I could hear in their own words, right. basically, what they were talking about. And it became very apparent early on that... The making of this album and, and the honing of their, their sound happened after uh, Nursery Crime, and they gigged a lot. And it really honed them as a live unit. At this mm-hmm. point, they already had one album under their belts, and they went out and they toured it incessantly. As Phil Collins said, uh, specifically when he was talking about uh, the longest track on the album, mm-hmm. Supper's Ready, was that by the time they got off the road, mm-hmm. they were a much tighter unit than they'd ever been before, and a lot more confident of their own powers. Right. And um, as Tony Banks said... We always knew that we had this inside us. And he said, with the album Foxtrot, it was just a case of everybody else catching up with us in his own inimitable, humble yes, way, obviously. <laughs> so, But it's true, you know, this is a band, and any band I think is like this, that when you come together, you kind of have to figure each other out. And what does everybody bring to the table? And, you know, what, what are the skills that people have? And what are the limitations that people have? You know, what is their approach and how does that really work for the band? In terms of uh, like just the cohesiveness, it, it, Nursery Crime was their first foray into this five-man piece. Mm-hmm. I mean, Steve was new, Phil was new. You're all kind of. I mean, for the first album of a five-piece, that was tremendous. But then after releasing that album and then going on tour, like by the time they came went into the studio for Foxtrot, it was like you know, it probably took no time to. It was like an old hat. Like they had been through this before. This five piece was now together for a while. They played together. So it's kind of just an easy album to get into, and and you could tell that they had much more confidence going into this album. It's kind of like when they recorded Trespass. I mean, before they had Phil and Steve, they right. toured that material for a long time. So mm-hmm. they just and I think I mentioned this back when we did the Trespass episode. You could hear that confidence, and yeah. they were comfortable with the material yeah. when they recorded it. And it's kind of now echoes in uh, in Foxtrot. Exactly. Excellent. So let's move forward with the first track of this album, a little ditty called Watcher of the Skies.
I think this is you know I, I barely anybody knows about this track really is it? it's it's yeah, not one of the, it's not one of the well known uh, no, Genesis tracks at all is it There's only so much Morse code I can do at once For me it's one of the best openers of a Genesis album I mean you can't help but just be grabbed by that opening Mellotron or right. and it's just something that will always stick with you as a Genesis fan, like just knowing this song, I think anytime you hear that opening, whether you see it live or with Steve does it live, or you see the musical box or you saw them do it back in the day, like you can't help, but just get caught up in that and, and just know that it's going to lead to something huge and something grand is about to happen. It oozes character. So atmospheric. And I think it's, I always think, you know, if you're putting this album on for the first time and you hear that opening, I know that, for me, it's like, where is this going? How long is this going to go on for? Uh, and it's like, it's not just kind of two chords and then you're into something. It's it's a little intro that, as far as I could tell, again, I'm, I'm a bit of a muse- musician, slightly tiny a little bit. But I don't think that these chords have any real relation to the verse chorus later on in the track. It's very much its own little Mellotron piece. It's not foreshadowing anything musically, but it's... It really does set this kind of epic opening for the song and for the album. It gives you an idea of that this is different, and you're going to be on a different ride for a while. I think I read or heard in an interview that uh, Mike and Tony based lyrics off of an Arthur C. Clarke novel called Childhood's (laughs) End. And, um, you know, it's about, I can see if I can remember, it's about uh, aliens coming in a spaceship, and they take away all the adults. Or they take away all the kids? I don't know. Yeah, there's actually going to be a miniseries on sci-fi this December. Yes, and it's supposed to be a pretty good adaptation. So the book is one of, um, in case you didn't know, I'm a bit of a science fiction nerd too. Um, (laughs) This is one of the first Arthur C., probably the first Arthur C. Clarke book I read when I was 10. And it's really, well. it's, it's a short novel, maybe 200, 300 pages. You probably read it in a weekend if you plow through it. It's great. And it's a classic of the genre. And so they took some ideas from this book of the, the idea of kind of a desolate planet that there had been civilization on, and then it kind of went away. So I was saying, like, yeah. what, um, what I was, you know, alluding to earlier yeah. was that I do, with those chords, the intro, getting back to that, it does kind of have a feel like there's a spaceship coming down. Like, imagine if you're watching, like, if you're watching right. a movie and a spaceship was coming right. out of the sky, these chords would be playing. You can cut yeah. close encounters of the yeah. third kind yeah. to yeah, this, absolutely. you know, over Devil's Tower in Wyoming and kind of be like, oh, this works. You know, that might yeah. be my next mashup. That maybe. could be. That works <laughs> It sounds out. like something out of this world. And I remember yes. the first time hearing this, um, you know, I was 16 years old. It was the mm. mid-90s. <laughs> this isn't something I was hearing on, <laughs> on a regular... No this wasn't this was... being played on the radio, right? And uh, it just gave me absolute chills, hair standing up um, mm-hmm. on the back of my neck. And it still does to this day. Yeah. It, it's, 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 a, it's their anthem. Mm-hmm. It, it is iconic. Uh, and it really does set the tone for the rest of the album, like many of their opening tracks do. Um, and wasn't this a single? Did they make yes, this a single? They re- they recorded a version as for a single that's a bit shorter that has it's kind of faster, a faster, isn't it? A little bit faster, and it has a different ending to it. Yeah, it, it didn't go. Did it? Did it? Did it? It could have. Kind of Disney music. It had this kind of stretched out, kind of jammy. There was a bit of a guitar solo, a bit of 
more kind of like eyeing vocals at the end. So it's a neat alternate version of it. I could, I think that the one on the album is better, but I could think that if you're if they were saying we need a single, boys. This is not the one. Right. Pick, but, okay. <laughs> but a re-recorded version, it definitely speaks to their uniqueness Absolutely. at the time. And I think that, you know, while, you know, the record company was very supportive of them, might have been like, and they paid to have them do a re-record, a re-record of this. Right. But I think it must have been like, well, well, we'll give it a shot and see what comes yeah. out. You know, <laughs> again, you know, 1972, 73 in England is a single. Yeah, maybe it could have done done something. You never know. Well, what? just to let you know, I, I'm reading again from Wikipedia here. Watcher of the Skies, the title is taken from a line from the 1817 sonnet on first looking into Chapman's Homer oh. by John Keats. Uh, and the, the Mellotron that was used was bought from King Crimson. Yes. yes. So with, with the poetry reference, we're saying they still haven't gotten laid at this point. <laughs> <laughs> I suspect they might have seen a woman's bra. <laughs> My favorite line is, uh, will you survive on the ocean of being? Mm. That sounds deep. For a 22-year-old inexperienced. Being is a type of lager. Yeah. <laughs> I, did, I said to Ellie last night when we were listening to this, I said, you know, there's a lot of really good young person poetry in this album. And it's... It is kind of when I, and when I say young person poetry, it is this kind of literary, you know, a little bit self impressed with themselves, but it really works. Well, yeah, when you're that age, you don't yeah. have experience to go on, so you have to rely right. on literature exactly. and current events and you know the external world rather than your internal reflection <laughs> right. onto it. So, yeah, that's a yeah. You're like you're, it's true. This album yeah. is. Full of that. I mean, yes. wait till we get those suppers ready. You know? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> well, I, I agree with Rutherford. Rutherford at one point said that the lyrics, some of them are a little bit clunky, yeah. like "Watcher of the Skies," "Watcher of All," like that. <laughs> that little bit. Okay, yeah, I, I don't love it, but I'm so used to it now that yeah. it, it doesn't. Yeah. To me, it it turned the 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 negative of trying to cram in more syllables than you probably should have into that area, into that line into a benefit because it's done throughout the song that way if you do it once it sounds but if you do it repeatedly it sounds like oh this is part of the song like you meant to do it right exactly (laughs) so you kind of have it's it's making the benefit where you can get it and you know i definitely hear what he's saying that yeah they probably write it differently now or in the 80s or 90s or whatever but but for the time yeah it worked and gabriel sang it fine it's it is one of those um songs where you really hear how they benefited from playing live because the actual playing on this is incredibly self-assured yes. and especially Collins just oh, yeah. absolutely right. nails this. Yeah, he gives yeah. this kind of rat-a-tat, rat-a-tat, gives this rhythm something that could be very stiff, a flow that works, and they're all doing great on this. I mean, it's Steve has great guitar in here that adds mood. He's not kind of wailing on stuff throughout the track but kind of these mournful tones throughout the song some kind of aggressive things in the verses the ending guitar in the last maybe 20 seconds of this track where it kind of and it just sounds so sad and it's it's putting out the emotion of the music that you kind of should be getting from it 
So I think it's fantastic. On, on, on when I listen to the album, like when you say how they sounded so confident and lo- like as they, they had some experience playing live, whenever this ends on the album version, I'm expecting applause and the crowd yes. to go wild. Yeah. I'm like, why is anybody clapping? Oh, this is a studio yes. version. And, is- and there is that moment from the version that's on Three Sides Live that you know that has the instrumental part of it at the end and it was taped in Glasgow in like the 1976 tour where at the end but right between these chords you hear somebody whether it's an audience member or even one of the band members trying to go oh! <laughs> and it's like sometimes I'll just like listening to it last night I kind of threw that in oh! <laughs> because it just feels like part, part of, of the song. yeah it's part of the song now but it almost so. feels like because they, they, they have that anticipatory element to that that yeah. sort of like here it builds up to that one final chord yeah. and um, and of course on the three size live version Bruford and, and Collins go absolutely bananas oh, yeah. as well I always thought that was Collins like giving us uh, like yeah. kind of giving a signal to the rest of the guys it was kind of like when during the 2007 tour during the drum duet Collins is like well I don't like yeah, that's I always thought it was stuff. like him doing that it kind of thing be. on yeah. I, I, the one thing I think that audiences in the early 70s had over an advantage over us is that they were they were seeing all this new like mm-hmm. peter coming out doing the whole watcher intro with the bat wings that was all new and that surprised them and now when we go see like musical box do this or it, like we know what's coming so it's right. it doesn't have that effect on us when i saw the musical box in 2006 do the selling Ellen show of course i knew that peter was going to come out and standing there in front but my wife wasn't familiar with the show so halfway through the Watcher intro, she's like, oh, my God, there's a guy standing in front. I just saw his eyes. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, yeah, of course. But then I thought, oh, how lucky of her. She got to have that experience yeah, of having yeah, it yeah, overwhelm yeah, her and see that. And I was like, wow, that's really cool. Yeah, yeah. I think we, like I had a couple moments like that with the musical box where I was like, oh, so that's how they did the staging. I was like, oh, that's cool. Like you, you see pictures of it, but it is kind of cool to see how they actually and assuming that it was similar how they actually did it on stage with some of the backgrounds, the slides, the lighting, or whatever it might have been, uh, Peter's costumes and everything. Yeah. So well, not really all cool. of it, unfortunately, can be as epic as people <laughs> wish. I, I remember seeing a uh, um, a Genesis tribute act, which I won't name, um, and they uh, they performed it. They opened the show, their show, in a venue which was significantly smaller than even Genesis <laughs> were playing in back in the day. And... Um, the uh, the lead singer came out in his cape uh, mm-hmm. with his bat wings holding his uh, mm-hmm. holding the uh, um, the tambourine up to his face and uh, he managed to break one of the bat wings off on the ceiling <laughs> as he walked in and then had to perform the entire thing with one wing uh, which is a little less than epic <laughs> right the grandeur of the moment was lost there so well excellent anything else for yeah we had a, a funny comment from one of our listeners Phil he was saying that. Uh, in the 70s, he and his friend, they were such a fan of this song that when they would drive past each other's house, they would honk the horn. <laughs> like they would go by each other and you go, and they said the neighbors all hated them because they were, <laughs> all they would do was honk that right. staccato. Honking you know. that rhythm. So yeah. that's fantastic. So excellent. Well, moving forward, we have timetable. A carved oak table tells a tale. Times when kings and queens sipped wine from goblets gold, and the brave would lead their ladies from out the room to our school. A time. 
Timetable. Tom, why don't you jump in with timetable? Well, okay. Uh, <laughs> We've decided you're the expert on this track. Well, for first of all, it's interesting because uh, a couple of the lyrics remind me of our experience recording Tabletop Genesis. Uh, a dusty table, musty smells. That's kind of like... <laughs> uh, I have actually an interesting history with timetable. If we're on Facebook, it would say it's complicated. Um, <laughs> but unlike Stacy, whose first foray into old Genesis was Foxtrot, mm-hmm. Foxtrot was the last album I got. Oh, yeah. Because I was just in the late 80s, once I started getting into them, I was a cassette listener. I didn't really buy albums. So I might have been able to find this album easily if I was looking for LPs, right. but I was looking for cassettes. So I got every single cassette I found it. I could not find Foxtrot anywhere. Till finally, about a year after I really started getting into it, and I would look everywhere, I found it in some mall in New Jersey. I think Summit, New Jersey, mm-hmm. and it was like the Holy Grail. I said, oh! "I found." <laughs> well, it was out of print for a while, and that's probably when it came back into print. Around hey, this then, must have been so. maybe eighty-seven or eighty-eight. Right, I think. Yeah. And but in between that time, while I was searching for it, mm-hmm. I had heard every song on it in some other capacity, okay. whether it was Seconds Out. Uh, Genesis Live album or even David Palmer's Orchestral Ah, which is where I'd heard Horizons and Can Utility so the only song that was new to me when I finally found the cassette was Timetable so this was like the last Genesis song that I had not heard I'm like oh I can't wait to hear this and I heard and I was like okay (laughs) alright and I listened to it and you know it was okay like as a Genesis song I actually sometimes skip it. I listen to it a few more times getting ready for this podcast. But overall, I kind of just... It was almost like this was a Seven Stones kind of song, but not as good as Seven Stones. It's definitely after Watcher. It's a lighter track. And it is the one on this album that probably gets very little discussion. Although there were some people on our website who were singing its praises. So I thought my comments were it was a bit light after Watcher. The the piano intro sounds like an exercise. Like, this is my practice routine. And it's nice. And it's I'm pretty sure this is a Tony song. Yes. Uh, but no, this is this is the song that made me comment to Ellie last night when we were listening to it that this is actually really good young person poetry. Because I actually do think that there's some imagery in this line um, though, uh, though names may change, each name retains the mask at war. I just thought that was a really interesting metaphor imagery there. And again, it, it kind of said, I was able to look at it as like, yeah, that's good young person line. 
that is a that's something that I might have written back in my early twenties type of thing and thought, oh, that's brilliant. That's deep. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then when you think about it, you're like, what does it really mean there? Like, yeah. so Simon, you were just talking offline about the the phrase timetable in Eng- England. In, in England, a timetable is effectively a a schedule for your uh, school working day. Okay. Um, so uh, if uh, if you were to, to be at any kind of school, certainly back during the 70s and, and possibly the 80s mm-hmm. as well, um, you were given a timetable of your lessons for that week. Okay. And that timetable was effectively your map of the week. You would work mm-hmm. around that timetable. And okay. so as a result, I mean, I know that there's a, you know, references to... Uh, to their school mm-hmm. days, I just thought that it was it was worth mentioning considering sure. this song. It's it's interesting because the in the U.S. timetable, at least my kind of thing with it was a train schedule, a bus schedule, some sort of you know things about going places or waiting to go places. <laughs> It's great we're having this conversation because my interpretation of timetable is nothing to do with an actual timetable. So what's your so, yeah. Is it about a table that travels through time? Well, no, but I wish my brain went there because that <laughs> sounds pretty cool. Um, my, I mean, when I first heard this song, I don't, it, was, it sounded very romantic, mm. a lot of very British. Um, it was actually kind of exotic. Mm. It, it sounded, you know... Um, almost like a traditional song. I don't know if that makes any sense, but um, so I always thought like it was a timetable is a metaphor for a place in time or a time where everybody could come together around the table, like mm-hmm. yearning for, a, you know, days where, you know, people follow tradition and the way mm-hmm. things used to be type things. So that's kind of the sense I got of it. I never thought, well, na- consider the, the literal sense a sort of, of it. Nas- nostalgia song. Yeah, a nostalgic song. Oh, sure. Um, I, I just, I really like the song and the more I listen to it, I think, you know, when Tom was saying, when I first heard it compared to everything else on the album that, you know, you're encountering for the first time or the early days of listening, this is like kind of falls to the bottom. It gets overlooked. Mm-hmm. But after so many years now of, of getting to know this album, the song is really starting to kind of creep up a bit in terms of uh you know my appreciation mm-hmm. for it um i think it's most straightforward i could totally hear and this is the one that i think that actually even though i just talked about how it harkens back to you know an earlier time and has that kind of older romantic feel to it i think it's the most contemporary sounding mm-hmm. song on the album t- right now like i could totally hear ben fold's doing a cover sure, of this yeah absolutely yeah, yeah. the melody is is you know very i think it's beautiful um i love that when it goes into i think it's the second verse i wrote it down what is it um gone are the carvings there's this nice chord that comes in um very subtly underneath the piano line i just think it's it's really well done again this is another example of genesis you know being very subtle in a in a very impactful way. Well, can I just make mention that on the Wikipedia page, it does say that timetable features a romantic theme that yearns for tradition <laughs> and decency. I may have written it. <laughs> in defense, you know, I'll look at timetable maybe in a future year as the way I do Seven Stones, where I used right. to always skip over Seven Stones, and now I don't because. You have shown me the error of my ways, uh, and I do. I do You're appreciate. <laughs> <laughs> I do appreciate the theme of the song, where like the right. first half of the song is talking about this 
time of kings and queens when everything was so important and your honor and your valor. And then the second half of the song is like hundreds of years later where all that stuff that they thought was so important back then doesn't mean anything because everything is dusty. The castles are empty. Only the rats are the ones who are now in this, in this uh, Mm -hmm. castle. So it's like what you might think is the most important thing in your world. You know, it's going to disappear someday. So, you know, just, Lighten up a little bit. <laughs> Ellie, Ellie actually compared it to another track last night. I compared it to... Hold On My Heart. I was going to say that I, my opinion is similar to Tom's in the sense that I, I can compare it with Seven Stones. It's my least maybe favorite song in the album because all the rest of the songs are so intense and so, you know, has so much character. It's a beautiful song. The melody is beautiful, the lyrics, but you have to give it time, I think. If you listen to the whole album, you maybe you think, oh, it's the least, you know, likable song. But it's a beautiful song. Right. No, it it takes more time than the others. Maybe. Right. But yeah, probably compared to Hold On yeah. My Heart in the sense Kind of as a lighter song yeah. that, you know, not that they're kind of a one-to-one kind of comparison, but it was just kind of a, like, a, it was a break after an intense Exactly, track. yes. In between two very intense, then, you know, we have to get them out by Friday. Which yes. Is, <laughs> the interesting part is that you were talking about... Uh, dusty and vacated um, castles, uh, or at least they speak about dusty and vacated castles, that overlooks the huge change in property prices now that are, are concurrent actually in the UK. And I think they over really overlooked that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, speaking about property, that yeah, exactly. segues nicely into the next track, yes. Get Them Out by Friday. was a song for me or is a song for me that benefited to getting the newer versions that had the lyrics <laughs> because again as an american when i and tom alluded to this with the cassette tape as a 
as somebody born in 1971 who got into this band around, you know, the early to mid 80s, Foxtrot was out of print in the U.S., and so finding a copy of it was difficult. My actual first copy of it was a, and I have it, it'll be pictured as part of our spread on Facebook and elsewhere, was an album that I bought at a flea market in New Jersey at Englishtown Auction, for those of you in the area. And it was like, oh, I'm finally able to hear this album and Peter sing Supper's Ready and this stuff, which was very different than the versions on Seconds Out I was used to. But that version that I had that was the old Buddha Records version from the U.S. didn't have the lyrics. So like many of us, I think I kind of created the own, my own lyrics to some of these songs. And Forget Them Out by Friday was more about not knowing that, you know, singing the lyrics now, that there's these different characters, John Pebble, Mark Hall, Mrs. Barrow, Mr. Uh, all genetic control, all these different things. Uh, it, it was a very different characterization. But I do think that Peter, what Peter did in this, lyrically or singing-wise, was he really gave the characters in the song different accents and different approaches to singing it that even without knowing the words or knowing the characters, still as an American gave me a sense of, oh, this is a bunch of different people talking here. You can run a straight line, really, from Harold the Barrel through um, Get Him Out by Friday to the Battle of Epping Forest. I was going to say, this is a... What I consider like a precursor to Battle of Epping yes, Forest because one, run. you've right. you've kind of got that working class, you know, theme where here it's you know tenants being kicked out of an apartment complex to Battle Battle of Epping where you have these like working class gangs against each other. You have not so quite so much in the song as it is in Battle of Epping, but you have Peter trying to put ten pounds of lyrics in a five pound sack. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> So it, it and it's it's just kind of even has that kind of coda lyric where at the end it's memo from Satin Peter of Rock Development saying with land in your hand you'll be happy on earth blah 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 and at the end of Battle Epping it's that oh and in the end it's a draw like you've kind of got that coda putting it to bed right. so this is kind of like his rehearsal for Battle Epping which would be his kind of like. And throw everything in there story with 18 characters right, right, right. Right. and this is a very prophetic song so it's about genetic engineering yeah, so yeah. And, and we're we're he yeah this is very much ahead of his times i think back probably what in 72 this was it science, was absurd science yes. fiction yeah, right. <laughs> and with the date with the date of yeah. the uh the tv flash on all dial-up program services is from the 9th of uh, the 18th of September, 2012. So this is already history for us in this uh, track. I will say, you know, talking about misunderstanding lyrics, the four-foot restriction on humanoid height, I always thought it was a formal restriction on humanoid height, which still made sense, but I just didn't know it was so specific and hobbit-like for uh, four foot. So. The two the two best things I, I like about this track is that it's, it's one where I will listen to it, I, the live version on live is a little has a little bit more energy to it but it's one of those where i will kind of get through and and there's like that instrument instrumental part in the beginning which is detailed in lyrics as a passage of time yeah. which does kind of go by and it gets very quiet and very slow which i don't know i kind of it doesn't really do anything for me but as as i was alluding to before the two best things the title it's like kind of the opposite of Watcher of the Skies, Watcher of All. Like, this get him out by Friday. It like has such a like yeah. marching yeah. kind of like 
It really works. And then Mike's bass yeah. is just incredible. Like, I will listen to the song solely just to hear Mike's bass. I, I, my notes were that Phil and Mike on this track are just together and, and locked in. And, you know, it just was sounding great moving forward. They're both playing like mad, but they're playing what's right for the song. And it's it's a crazy musically kind of intricate type of progression, but it just it just moves like in like a mofo (laughs) this song just bounces right off me i don't you know i I tend to tune out after hackett solo where it does then it goes into that quiet passage of time i tend to just like skip to the next track or i really do tune out um yeah this song maybe it is because there's so much going on Mm. and you know it just yeah this is probably my least favorite on foxtrot I love these pieces, especially the different characters, you know, the different, you know, the, the story. If you don't pay attention to the lyrics, you might think, oh, it's a, like, as Mike said, you know, there are different, Peter makes different voices, different accents. So you, you realize, oh, there, there's, there's a conversation going on here, a discussion, I agree. And it really seems to be in his range. Like, you know, in, in yeah. this version of Supper's Ready later on, it feels like it's, it's pushing the edge of his range in a lot of places. And, but vocally, this just sounds like it's right in his sweet spot. So he's not straining to, to hit notes in this song, which I think works for me with this. And it's funny, it was never one of my favorites on this tra- on this album, but listening to it again recently, I'll say in the last year or so, I've gotten a better appreciation for this song. It's not, it still isn't like, oh, it's great. I do think of it as a dry run for Epping Forest in, in some ways. So it is that you know, precursor to something versus being its own identity. But it's, but I think the music is really cool to it. I think, and I think it works as a story more than I thought it did initially. That's interesting to know. I mean, there's a lot of this material on this album, which I personally believe is reinterpreted better on subsequent live outings. Right. I, for example, I do think that the version that they do on Genesis Live mm-hmm. is a slightly edgier version than, sure. than is on yeah. this. I, I'm, I like both versions. I think it's yeah. probably one of my uh, my personal favourite moments. Mm-hmm. I think sim- simply because the song itself, even though it has some quiet bits, has a huge amount of velocity. <laughs> it really hammers along, and um, that sonically sort of echoes the the the, the the lyrical content about mm-hmm. like go on we've got to move on we've got to move on got to right. do this got to change that really appeals to me it's certainly i genuinely think that it's for me it's the track that i overlooked the most mm-hmm. uh, and came back to and went actually this is a lot better than i thought it was yeah it's it's fascinating to kind of hear this in the context of the album <laughs> And you know it's the third track. It's it it's not as aggressive as Watcher is. It's certainly more aggressive than Timetable. Yeah, uh, and it's you know most time- things are. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so yes, it's not it's not the thrash version of Timetable here. But I think it's it's fascinating just to kind of see how they were able to develop this track that you know it it's not it certainly is not a verse chorus type of type of song there's nothing here that i can really jump in and say oh yeah that's the chorus of this well get them out by the actual get them out by friday is but it's not a traditional you know structure with that so i think this is really fun interesting it says here um 
Uh, Rutherford College singled out Get Em Up by Friday as one of the early Genesis songs that suffered from Gabriel writing too many vocals, making mm-hmm. the track busy and crowded. Mm-hmm. Collins reasoned this as a downfall to the band's typical method of songwriting, whereby a track was recorded instrumentally with the vocals written and recorded afterwards. Right. And I, I see what they're talking about. It right. is an incredibly busy song. Right. Yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of vocal going on there in you know, but it, it doesn't it doesn't push it as much for me as uh, Epping Forest does yeah, with being loaded yeah. up. But I think it's Gabriel had a lot that he wanted to say, <laughs> and at times when he was able to write, you know, these lyrics that that really kind of pushed the edge, he would do it. So. And you know, he was always forever the student of social commentary. Certainly in England at the time, there was a huge revolution in in public housing at that point, as everybody was being moved out of terrace houses or row homes, as they're known here, into high-rise blocks. Right. So with that, we'll jump into Can Utility and the Coastliners. The scattered pages of a book by the sea Held by the sand, washed by the waves A shadow forms Cast by a cloud Skimming by As eyes on the past But the rising tide absorbs them Effortlessly claiming They told of one who tired of all Singing praise him, praise him We heed not flatterers, he cried By our command Waters retreat Show my power Halt at my feet But the cause was lost Now cold winds blow Far from the north Overcast Ranks advance Fear of the storm Accusing with Rage and scorn The waves surround the sinking throne Singing crown him, crown him Those who love Our majesty Show themselves All bent their knees Does anybody know what the working title of this track was? I do. You do? I think so. What do you think? Bye Bye Johnny? Correct, 100%. Bye Bye Johnny. Johnny. I still, I'm not quite sure why there's on some of the old boots uh, that you hear, Gabriel introduces this track with that title. I think the lyrics were the same, but I'm not 100% sure. It's hard to tell with these old tapes sometimes, but, but that was the working title. So there you have it. This is one of these tracks that it's not like timetable in the respect that I kind of didn't think about it much, but it's, it's very, it's very different from the other tracks on the album. Mm -hmm. And I like it. I think it really connects. It's, it's very much a story song that I actually always felt told a pretty coherent story, but I don't quite know what that story was like the details of things, but it, it gave me the feeling of this is a, this is, this makes sense. To me, this is, one of their best songs um, okay. with this lineup. Right. So um, it just, everything works. Everybody's, what, you know, when I think of what I love about Genesis, 
um, you know, this song kind of represents that for me again with this, with the five piece lineup. Um, you know, it, it, when, you know, I think back when we talk about Abacab, I said the same thing about, mm-hmm. um, uh, you might recall right. this was the the perfect coming together of Banks, Collins, Rutherford. To right. me, this is the perfect coming together of the five of them. Um, you know, with the four piece for me, that's Dance on a Volcano. Okay. There's a song for each of these, like you know. <laughs> so the archetypical version <laughs> exactly. of a song. Exactly. Like so. it, I can't put in the words what I love about Genesis. I right. can just say, well, from this era, listen to this song. Sure. It's interesting, though, that you would choose this song as the quintessential. Mm. Yeah. Uh, did you? Is it a case of something you just sort of feel from within, or did you make a, like a conscious decision I, after comparing it with other tracks? I just feel within. I feel like you know the the all the playing of the parts, the drumming, the guitars. What I love about um, you know the guitar work of Genesis is in the song. What I love about the drumming of Phil Collins is in the song. Mm-hmm. What I love about Peter's vocals is in the song. It brings it all. Together. It brings it all together. So this is very personal observation. Sure. This isn't well. I haven't done an analysis, and right. this is the best, and this. <laughs> Presents it because of up, can utility. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. My favorite track is <laughs> can utility in the coastliners. Yes, I, 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 you know, I think obviously a lot of fans would be like, "Oh, supper's ready," you know, because yeah. it, it's so big and expansive and it incorporates so much of what they all brought to the table. Mm-hmm. But for me personally, what I love, the moments I love about them individually, and you know, what they can all bring to a song, to me, it kind of culminates in Can You Tilly and the Coastliners. Okay, I don't know how else to put it. Um, and I'm sure how I just explained it was confusing <laughs> and convoluting. But... I, I did note down that it has the best two-word singing combination on the album, which is effortlessly claiming. <laughs> and it just, like, listening to it yesterday, I was just like, I've always loved that moment. I, I don't really kind of care what the story is about. I know it's yeah. about King Canute and all this yeah. other stuff. But... I think Gabriel has even said in his solo work that like he uses lyrics on the way the words sound put together. And that's kind of like one of the things I like about the song is that even though I don't know or care what it's about, the way the words flow together, as you said, like effortlessly claiming, like there's all instances like that throughout the song, which I'm like, that's awesome. That's awesome. I will sing along to that. I don't know what it relates to, but it sounds good. Yeah. I, it's, the worst title I think I've of Genesis's yeah, career, is, yeah. but yeah. it's just a really bad title. Yeah, right. the last bit of the song where Peter sings in a different tempo and speeds up, you know. Exactly. It's very reminiscent of stagnation. It always makes you think of stagnation, of like kind of like the slow build up, and then you've got that instrumental at the part, and then kind of it's very epic at the end. See, this reminds me of Seven Stones. Maybe that's why I do have many love feelings for this because I do love Seven Stones, like the big chords and the you know the big instrumental part reminds me of uh, the build up in Seven Stones so on the Lady Boner ranking this is pretty high up oh, there yeah. man. this is up there okay. big Lady Boner for it, this song. It, from my understanding this is pretty much at least lyrically Steve's song I'm not sure about musically but I'm I think so on that respect too and and reading that with that knowledge now I was I was just like oh you know these are definitely like they just scream Steve lyrics to me like, good, because, yeah. like, the last two lines, like, see a little man with his face turning red, though his story's often told, you can tell he's dead. Like, that just kind of s- screamed to me like, like, Spectral Morning's yeah, defector lyrics. Absolutely. And I was like, oh, wow, I'm like, I could see this connection from 72 to the late 70s now with his lyrics. And it just, it was one of those things that it, it, it made me kind of appreciate the, what they all brought 
to it. What mm. Steve brought, what they all brought to the the table. With there this. was a lot of. Uh, cross-pollination though a, a huge amount of, uh, of multitasking that was going on in the band right. and I think that this is a, a classic example of that because you know you don't instantly think of Steve as a lyricist for right. Genesis sure. um, and yet this actually does sit quite effortlessly right. in in the in the calendar <laughs> yeah it's, it's very it, they all whatever quality control they have and I'm sure that, you know, if you talk to all five of them, they probably have different interpretations of this. But, you know, if it if it got past everybody, it was because it was good. Yeah. And doesn't mean that if it didn't get past everybody, it wasn't good, but it wasn't right for the band. And I think that's always a, an interesting thing when you're working in a band is trying to figure out what works for everyone. And that's the compromise of it. And Stacey said, this is a song that she points to as like her perfect five-piece mm-hmm. ensemble. It's it's a song that I would point to when I want to say like a prog song. It doesn't have to be 20 minutes exactly. to be a nice, great yeah. prog song, which covers a lot of different areas. Right. Like, look at this song. It's five and a half minutes long. And right. you it feels like a progressive rock song. Oh, yeah. But it's it's not much longer than a pop song you'd hear on the radio. So you're saying this is Foxtrot's Me and Sarah Jane. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, the my favorite part, which I just love, and every time I hear it, it gets my lady boner up, is the beginning. <laughs> beginning the instrumental, you have a Phil Phil, followed by Tony organ, and then Mike doing bass. Phil starts. And Mike's Mike's doing the bass during that part. It's just like a good ten seconds of. Lady Boner awesomeness. I'm you, it's <laughs> magical. Yeah, you find these little moments. And, and again, it's as a musician slash non-musician, it's always about, for me, like, how'd they come up with that? How did they sit in a room with each other and either maybe say, oh, this is something to bring to the band if they fat wrote something at home or if they were just jamming and kind of came onto this thing and probably repeated it 18,000 times and said, okay, now that'll go here. Like that's I'm always fascinated by the construction of these things, mm-hmm. and so and yeah, it's it's like a, it's it's deceptively uh, complex, <laughs> and this is one I love listening to on the headphones. Sure, you know if I do have a headphones playlist, oh, okay. and this is absolutely on it. So what is it in the headphones that you really listen to? Just kind of the it's just everybody coming together. Okay. There's just so much going on that you know if you're just listening and doing something else, you mm-hmm. won't you. You won't hear. I think like Watcher, you know, my there's you know the big fat chords and, mm-hmm. and um, Gabriel's vocals. It's more kinda, in your face. Yeah, in your face. Where this is, you know, there's so much going on, particularly with the like, arpeggios and everything. You know, I I just you know I'd like listening to this on the headphones. I think Excellent. it's that's the the headphones track on this album. Cool. Well, I think as we go into the next song, let's give it a couple seconds extra breathing room that the cds don't give it because my one beef with the cds is that it ends from can utility and goes right into horizons and you need that changing of side to okay distance so we'll give it a couple seconds just to breathe one two three
now we jump into Horizons. Or, as I call Horizons, anything she does for Supper's Ready. <laughs> I said Mike Lord is the only person to compare Horizons and anything she does. That's right. So, and we will now move on. So, <laughs> if you listen to our Invisible Touch episode, you may know what that reference is. But the, uh, so, Horizons, what, what can you say about Horizons? It's a beautiful piece that I used to be able to play on guitar years and years ago. Really? I would spend hours just playing the Horizons, and I didn't get it like perfect, but I would. I was. I, I remember I enjoyed playing it, even with mistakes, because it's such a beautiful. And trying to improve, you know. Mm-hmm. A bunch of us around the table, our advice is don't use it as a wedding song because you're going to run into trouble. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Three out of the five of us, well, two or a couple, have used it as a wedding song. I used it in 2005 when I got married. I, I We had a guitarist at our wedding, and I said, all right, well, here's, you know, you play the general stuff, but we would like you to play the song Horizons by Genesis. Well, mostly I said that. <laughs> I said, can you learn it? Because when we have the bridesmaids walk down, we'd like you to play Horizons. So I actually sent him the DVD of the documentary. Is that like the songbook? Songbook. Yeah, I sent him yeah. the DVD of songbook. I said, here, learn it. <laughs> it's easy. You can do it. And it was a little bit, he said it was a little bit complicated to play, but he did a kind of an arrangement of it. So as the bridesmaids were coming down, he starts playing it, and my best man was like, "Is that what I think it is?" I'm like, "Yes." <laughs> but we had some we had some weird thing where like we couldn't see where the bridesmaids were coming from, and the photographer was sending them in a hurry. Then she was sending Kathy, but he wasn't done with Horizons yet, and and so I all of a sudden I had to look at him and go like, "Flip the page, play Kathy's song," and so then it was just it was kind of rushed. So we got a little bit of taste of it, but it was it didn't work out quite well. Right. When Stacey and I got married, we went for a recorded version mm-hmm. of it. And um, the problem that we had is that um, the the officiant jumped the gun <laughs> a little bit um, and, and thought we were due to start. I think it was just like some comment or something. And she thought, oh, we're ready to go. Which then meant that was the cue for the DJ to start playing Horizons. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile... Stacy's downstairs in the bar with her friends having a few drinks. <laughs> no idea that the right, that the exactly. wedding ceremony has uh, supposedly started <laughs> until until my best man Robert runs down all out of breath going <laughs> they started you got to come up you got to come up and they're all sloshing their drinks going right. no I'm like, I have ten more minutes. I said five fifteen or something like that, right. and I'm like, I'll be up, I'll be up in a few minutes. He's like, No, can I? And he literally dragged me by the arm. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, we're on our third rendition of Round of Horizons. <laughs> so everybody at our wedding got to hear Horizons yes. more than probably any Genesis fan has ever heard Horizons. <laughs> we enjoyed it so much. Yes. It was very nice. Yeah, so. for the fans that were there, I'm sure they appreciate it. I'm sure Simon was not happy about that at no. all. So. It was it was not it was not an unpleasant thing. It was just slightly surreal. Let's try it again. And when you're waiting at the altar, yeah, there's always that imagine little bit of nervousness of going, okay, well. When is this? Why hasn't she come up yet? So, uh, so now you have probably a different association with this song than you did previously. It certainly does loom large in the memory. I should say. I think for I have no wedding associations with this track. We had a little bit of right. We had we had had other Genesis music items, uh, but we for me it's I I do love this piece. It's a nice little 
uh, acoustic guitar interlude. It doesn't overstay its welcome. It's maybe, what, a minute and a half, two minutes or so. And I think it's, you can see Hackett's love of Bach, which when I think later on in life, I heard some Bach guitar pieces and I was like, oh my God, it's like, it is not a, a copy in any way, but it's definitely that feel and style that you know was a start of a rich mine of material that he would kind of pursue in his acoustic albums later on that i thought was really nice and i think that it's it's a window into his kind of guitar mindset in some ways that he does this very does dark electric guitar music but can do these very beautiful acoustic pieces and i i remember it might even be on the interviews uh from um on the re-releases or it's in a book somewhere that Steve said something along the lines of, you know, when I played this for the guys, Phil said he thought that when he finished, he's like, it feels like there should be applause after that. <laughs> like, it's kind of one of those pieces. It's like, oh, very good, you know, that it's just a, a recital almost of things. So, yeah, I think he was surprised that they let him put it on the album. Yeah, exactly. So, But it is a great piece of music. I yeah. mean, I, I, it's right up with, their, for example, with Steve Howe's... Um, mm-hmm. uh, solo piece the clap as right. well i, I, I mood for a day, for a day. Yeah. yeah exactly and i think that was that era with you know uh, fragile came out in 71 this was 72 where it was nice to give the guitarist a chance to show their talent in a different way uh with steve howe with his acoustic pieces with uh steve with hackett with this one so i think it it was a really kind of maybe it was of the time to do this type of thing mm-hmm. although i can't necessarily think of other guitarists who besides the two of them who did that and they went on to work together in the 80s so yes in the um in the frankly not awesome gtr <laughs> <laughs> right very different so. well, it's one of those where i think also with steve howe I, I hope he still enjoys playing it because it's one of those where the yes. fans kind of like if you go to see steve howe you're you're expecting to get the clap, which right. I don't know if that's yes. came, came out too right. <laughs> as as Hal says, it's actually it's just clap, show. not the clap. Yeah. It's just clap. But. but always, it's it's you know one of the few instrumental tracks. I mean, they didn't do many that are strictly just mm-hmm. instrumental. But in listening to the opening chords of it, it kind of reminded me of a song that came later, not from Genesis, but when you hear the uh, do 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 mama just killed a man oh. like <laughs> it's weird in that? and all right so if you could do a mashup kind of like with okay. steve's horizons intro going into freddy yeah. well challenge accepted challenge accepted <laughs> I, i'm always amused and this again goes for both the clap and mood for a day and and horizons when at these shows you get people who must be kind of half drunk on beer or whatever going, Horizons! <laughs> and I'm just like, is that really the mood that you should be putting forward? Horizons! Or doing the devil horns. Yeah. No, when he's already playing, people scream things. Or, yeah, yeah, yeah. Interestingly yeah. enough, do you remember we went to see him, or we certainly went to see him at the Scottish Rite, yes. and he was halfway through... Uh, the rendition of Horizons when his guitar amp t- blew out. Oh no! That might different. The battery in his, uh, uh-huh. in the little preamp in his little guitar went, and so it just got quieter and quieter and quieter. <laughs> and then he just sort of like looked at the audience, and we looked back at him, and he sort of shrugged his shoulders, and someone handed him another guitar, and, and it was just the way he went, ah, oh, another guitar, and carried on. <laughs> Pick up where we left off. So, so this is wonderful. I think that again. It's a nice kind of cleanser for the start of this side of the album. And we segue into Supper's Ready. 
Walking across the sitting room, I turn the television off. Sitting beside you, I look into your eyes as the sound of motor cars fades in the night time. I swear I saw your face change. It didn't seem quite right, and it's. Hello, babe, with your guardian eyes so blue. Hey, my baby, don't you know our love is true? Coming closer with our eyes, a distance falls around our bodies. Out in the garden, the moon seems very bright. Six saintly shrouded men move across the lawn slowly. The seventh walks in front with a cross held high in hand, and it's Hey, babe, your supper's waiting for you. I can't believe we're actually talking about this track. <laughs> I know. Uh, for this track, because it is massive and there's the different segments of this track, we are not going to go through it in order. We're going to go through it as we talk about it. And so if we don't cover a part of this, who knows? Maybe we'll do an episode just on Supper's Ready someday. But, you know, for right now, this is going to be our, you know, impressions of this track. And if we miss something... Comment on Twitter or Facebook or some other venue to us so we remember to talk about it next time. So, this is wonderful. I think this track is, is it's hard to go wrong. It's definitely a statement of, here's something we can do. We can do a long song that's different from other bands' long song. It's not necessarily developing pieces throughout an entire track. It really is kind of different songs wedded together. Yeah. But it works for that reason. It gives it a sense of whimsy that turns into the sense of darkness and ho- and then hope later on in the track. So for me, that's kind of my quick impression of a 20-some minute track. I think that's really all we need to say about it. Yeah, <laughs> I think we're done. All right, this episode yeah, is wrapping up faster than we thought. So come on, people. Go around and say our favorite song, right? We're done. <laughs> yeah. I wonder who doesn't like Suburbs Ready as a song, as a piece. I mean, if you're a Genesis fan and you have any interest in their back catalogue, you will have encountered this song and had some kind of emotional reaction to it. I mean, it's yeah. a, it's a beer moth, yes. really, when you think about it. it and it, it's... um. I, th- I think it, it serves as, as both a touchstone and a millstone around their mm. necks. Right. I mean, they've often talked about the fact that um, with the, the sheer length of the song mm. and being having to be saddled with that uh, as, as not only as part of their legacy, but as to, to, to be expected to pay 
pay homage to it in a huge chunk yeah. of their set right. is um, it's it, I can see why they saw it as problematic. Yeah. They all still talk about it as something they're very proud of, and you know, even Mike Rutherford, who can kind of poo-poo the stuff maybe more than any of them, still says it's his favorite piece from that era. So, you know, for me, you know, again, the emotional reaction to this when I was again in my early days of a Genesis fan when I was taping the LA Invisible Touch shows off of King Biscuit Flower Hour in, you know, late 86, early 87. This was part of the old medley for that with an In the Cage, In That Quiet Earth, and then Supper's Ready. I had never even heard Supper's Ready at that point. I didn't have seconds out. This was still early days, so I'm recording this off the radio, maybe even listening with headphones at the time. And there's this weird keyboard solo that I'm just like, what, what is going on here? And when Phil gets to the 666 part, it's that time that you have a physical reaction to music where you had kind of, I had shivers going down my back from it. And I was like, what is this? And I think, you know, if, if there's any moment when, you know, the light of a band can go into love of a band, I'm like, okay, if a band can have this physical reaction for me, it's there's got to be something there. I, I totally agree. I mean, I, I, there are very few songs which give me chills up and down my neck, but I think that this is one of those, mm -hmm. especially as a young person when you're just discovering the world of music for the first time mm -hmm. and, and the world of Genesis, mm -hmm. I had exactly the same reaction. I, I, I actually heard the... Uh, and I think we could probably all recount our own first time you yeah. heard Supper's Ready. And for mm -hmm. me, it was uh, in a in a college library where they had a record player okay. and myself and my best friend, we sat down with headphones and he had a copy of Seconds Out <laughs> and we listened to the live version and that New Jerusalem section, I just, you know, it was that moment where, where you just think to myself, I'm alive in this music. Right. <laughs> For me, it's like I didn't know music could do this. Yes, yeah, you know, exactly that. And, and it's the power of it and... And I think, you know, as a musician sometimes, I think that has to be a little bit scary when you realize that you've done something that touches people this way. Because then it, it is the matter of how do you top that? Yes. How do you move forward from that? And I think that's, as you said, you know, it's been that, you know, really positive thing for Genesis. It gave them this huge song that they were able to do to really capture audiences. But then it is, you know, how do you top that? And I think that that was even... Part of the discussions when they were, you know, they'd done Selling England and then it was, what's our next step? How do we top these things? Because you don't want to become a carbon copy of yourself. No, you don't want to repeat past glories. Right. I mean, does everybody actually remember the very first time that they, they heard? I don't remember the first, but I know it would have been Seconds Out, that Seconds Out version. So it's almost like you can discover this song two different times. The first time when you hear the Seconds Out version and the Phil version, that's the one that you... Are blown away with the first time and you and then you play it over and over again and that becomes the the supper's ready that you know and as i said earlier foxtrot was the last album that i got so it took a long time for me to actually finally hear the studio version and there's a lot of different you know there's a lot of different effects that are done maybe you hear more of the instrumentation you know the 12 string guitars and all that a little bit more on the studio version but it's 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 definitely a different dynamic than when you hear the live version first and then go to the studio mm -hmm. I don't want to oh, say and, and it's, and it's yeah. Peter versus Phil there Peter versus too, Phil you know? like a big that's a big moment when they have the two different styles going against each other yeah, yeah me too my, my first time was uh, through um, 
uh, seconds out, and I love the version. But uh, during the 80s, there was this tribute band in, in Buenos Aires, and I went to see them, and they played Zeppelin's Ready. So for me, like Kathy, like her experience, seeing the whole song for the first time, see the visuals, and be surprised and amazed, you know, especially the reactions of other people around me who knew the music way more than I mm-hmm. did back then, now I... I'm an expert. It was quite an amazing experience to see the, you know, the costumes and you know the different effects and you know it. It was quite an experience for me to rediscover the song live through a tribute band. I was wondering, did did any other bands? I know, obviously, kind of in the prog genre, every band kind of has their epic, their 20 minute, 25 minute song. At this point in October '72, like, had any other band had? A twenty-three minute song, like I know, close to the edge was about eighteen, 18 minutes. Yeah. Was uh, the name? Was this like the first of the big major? I think Tangerine. I, I'm not an expert on Tangerine Dream, but I think they might have been the first that did like a really long track like this, a really long song. I I think Supper's Ready might have been the longest for a bit, but I I don't know enough to really say. Oh, this was trumps the other ones. I know that like, uh, Floyd were were doing a version of. Uh, Dark Side of the Moon under the name Eclipse on right. tour in 72 yeah. but that was an album I suppose it's not yeah. a song is Echoes it? was probably Echoes about, was about that. Could, especially yeah, live sure, could be yeah. longer than yeah. 25 minutes I mean they would stretch things out with that the album version has to be at least 20 I think uh, I know I have a live version or two that are about 25 so you know that stretches it out in a different way I don't think um, there were many bands doing um uh, a song of this length with the kind of formal structure that they, that Genesis had brought to bear when they produced Supper's Ready. I mean, it's certainly I, we've we've discussed this, and I think the it, it's well known that that the band very very much view this song as separate suites or separate movements within a larger whole. Um, and uh, my my first real sort of like opinion when I first heard it was. For me, as a spotty teenager, I, I really did overlook, in some ways, the grander scheme that was at work. The in totality. That. The totality is a good word uh, for it. And I always remember thinking to myself, no, oh, I don't like it until it gets to Willow Farm. <laughs> and it is a... Um, I, I suppose, really, what it comes down to is, is that when you're a kid, and especially for me, I liked heavy metal and stuff, right. so it was quiet at the start. <laughs> you know, there was, there was that subtle stuff. Yeah coming in wouldn't it mate and um and i i don't know i i i think that it just takes a few listens before you get the reason why that opening section is 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 such a it's okay it's preparatory but it's crucial yeah i think that you know especially in the vote the 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 lover's leap part you know with the vocal section and then going into that musical interlude leading into the guaranteed eternal sanctuary man piece it's a beautiful piece of music. I know a farmer who looks after the farm With water clear He gets all his harvest I know a fireman who looks after the farm
So I think that after the heavierness of that part, you're on a trip that you can just let it take you away for. And and Gabriel's vocals in the Lover's Leap section to me just kind of scream creepiness. Yes. You know, yes. both the content and the way that it's kind of double tracked with his vocals on the on the st- on the studio version of this. It sets the tone for the rest of the song in this very pretty guitar piece that I think Tony wrote and then it turns into you know this this kind of LSD trip you know seeing figures walking across the way and you're unsettled right at the start of this song at least I am I know I, I agree I mean to, to be really honest with you that's I think that's one of the things which Peter Gabriel excels at is he excels at creepy. Yes. <laughs> you know, there is just something very otherworldly about how he approaches his, his worldview. Right. I think this, is ba- this first bit of the song is based on an experience he had with his wife. Uh, they were in this attic and that this house. Well, it was, was really cold. Yeah. Maybe they were both high. Or... Who knows? <laughs> uh, he said, Oh, I saw her face change and. Didn't seem so quite I think right. he was inspired yeah. by this experience to write his right. first bit of the song. Yeah. And you almost don't even have time to like let the song sink in because it starts here you know, right off the bat, walking across like starts with the vocals right away. Yes. So it's not like you get this instrumental part to kind of like lead you into the creepiness. You get the mm-hmm. creepiness right away. Right. And that's one thing um, that's pretty unique with this song is yeah the there's let's, no it, preamble. There's no, preamble. Yes. there's no overture. There you yeah. just go. It goes. You know. And there's other songs that Genesis does like this, but I think you know this was a bit jarring maybe. And um, well, that even says I think because Genesis was always about the song. Yeah. Not about showing all. I mean, they certainly did instrumental parts and things like that that were you know. That, that added to the song, but they were never about doing like close to the edge with a three minute kind of, you know, intro to this bigger piece. This was about the song and the vocals are what carry the song for Genesis. So I think that's, that's interesting that it, it does jump right into that. Um, I know with Guaranteed Eternal Sanctuary, man, I actually think that's kind of the weakest part of the, the track, uh, which has probably changed over time for me, but it's, it, it, it gets to a different place for me. And I'm always kind of like, once we get past the kids saying, we will rock you little snake, I'm like, that's where I'm like, okay, we're back on track here. And it goes into the str- screaming guitar part of the of the uh, waiting for battle underground. Yeah, hand in hand, gland in gland. Ooh. <laughs> right. So it's, it's like, what do, what do we each kind of feel about this song like what do you get out of the the parts you like and the parts that you know are there parts that you don't quite like in this song it kind of separates music lovers from music listeners because i have friends who they like music but the thought of sitting down intentionally to listen to a piece of music seems foreign to them like they'll put it on the background when they're doing something or They'll listen to it on the commute while they're reading or something or dance to it. Mm-hmm. But the thought of, what, oh, what are you going to do tonight? Well, I'm going to probably listen to this album while doing what? No, no I'm <laughs> going to listen to this right. album. That, that is that, my prime activity. That I'm turning off the lights. I'm putting headphones on and I'm going to get immerse myself in the music. And that's what this track, you have to do that Do that with this track. Like you start you know, from the beginning and you, and you just take this, as I used to say, this journey through mm-hmm. the music that Gabriel would always like to take listeners on and this is something that i always feel like it's something that 
I really probably won't listen to or I'll skip over it when I'm in a, just a non-listening mood or when I'm just in the background. But I, I want to give this track its due when I listen to it. So I kind of know I have to set aside a half hour to, <laughs> to really get into it. It yeah. demands your attention. I, I, every time this like shuffles on at work, I have to skip it because yeah. I will stop working to listen yes. to it. And like, this is the album. I think I mentioned this before. Foxtrot was the first Genesis album I bought after I had Genesis and Invisible Touch. I had thought okay. that those were the only two albums Genesis ever did up until the <laughs> mid '90s when I learned, oh no, they were a band that existed for many years prior <laughs> right. and released lots of great albums. And so I was like, okay, well I'll check out what they've done in the past. And mm-hmm. the first album I picked up was Foxtrot. Oh, you you picked a doozy yeah, then. Yeah. <laughs> and let me tell you, I you know I went from a light beer listener to a Scotch <laughs> listener. Uh, <laughs> In in this this one listening of this album, I mean, I entered a different dimension. I think when uh, how old did it didn't scare you? you off at all? It didn't scare me off. I was okay. it was scary. Sure, sure. But I loved it, and okay. I, I. But how old were you? I was you... sixteen. Wow. Fifteen or sixteen. Okay. And um, I was just like, and to what you said earlier, Mike, like they make music like this. Yeah. And awesome. I wanted to hear more. And uh, yeah, so this, this particularly Supper's Ready, because I heard bits of it. The reason I, you know, I learned about all the, the you know, Peter Gabriel's in the band and they had this, uh, you know, these other songs and, and albums was through the Genesis of History video. Uh, and I remember yes. there's this one bit where they show Willow Farm. A flower? If you go down to Willow Farm to look for butterflies,
I love when they say, all change. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, this, this what brings me around to, to a question I was going to ask the rest of you, which is, did they ever really do anything similar to Willow Farm again? Uh-huh. The reason being is that the Willow Farm section has a lot of the the mirth, if you will, yeah. of, of things like Harold the Barrel, Counting Out Time, but there's a, a surreal edge which I don't think they ever really no. fully explored again, and that was the one moment, really. Yeah. Lyrically, I, I think that it's um, it's a fascinating yeah. piece. It really is this this bit of whimsy in the middle of a dark song. Yeah. Uh, I thought it was mostly like this was Gabriel's big contribution. I thought he did the majority oh, yeah, yeah. of the musically. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, this was like a Gabriel song dropped in the middle of this. He did all the lyrics throughout the track, but everybody else contributed musically in, in a lot of ways. But getting things. like back to the surreal yeah. um, aspect of the song, I think this is this is like where the surreal, like this was the pinnacle of their kind of surreal yeah. storytelling. Um, because then you, you know, you go on to selling England mm-hmm. and that's more grounded in maybe what was going on in the culture of England at the time mm-hmm. um, in the seventies. And then you got to lamb, which yeah. was just, more, it was fantasy, but yeah. not kind of that English, it's not whimsical oh, whimsy the thing that it really reminds me of the, the most of is Beatles' S Psychedelia that's mm. what it, it I get that sense of sort of like you know the um, I am the walrus kind mm. of quality yeah. to uh, to the to the lyrical and also in some ways to the uh, to the musical um, uh, attack of it as well I don't know whether or not that was an intentional thing yeah. but um, it, it always when I've you know, listen to it, and even today, it always reminds me a little bit of the Beatles yeah. in that. Yeah. Sense. I think if they ever did a video for it, it would probably look like Yellow Submarine a little bit, yeah. of, or, or yeah. one of those like really bizarre animated kind of deals. Yeah. And and he wore a big flower head during this. So it's like again, the live presentation is that you know he had he had some his you know leotard on, but this was the first part of the song that had a costume change in it. And, you know, the flower definitely was, you know, not a serious thing. You need to, that is the whimsical part and, you know, it gets to dance around in a flower. Yeah. And then the costume changes very radically after that to the right. weird pyramid thing during the, the the keyboard solo in the end part. But, you know, it's, yeah, I think that the English whimsiness of this, if there hadn't been a break in this song with, a, with something like Willow Farm in it, I think it needs that in order to then get darker again. Because if it's just dark all the way through, you're kind of, where is this going? So it's a matter of where you place that. I think I heard Tony Banks say in an interview that they they had, they wrote Willow Farm first. That was okay. the first part of Supper's Ready they wrote. Okay. And then they had come up with like Lover's Leap and right. maybe a little bit of Guaranteed. Mm-hmm. And... Tony's idea was, well, now this is starting to sound like stagnation, so okay. let's throw in Willow Farm at the end at the <laughs> end of this to kind of so it doesn't continue on this more pastoral road. It gets mm-hmm. dark and crazy, and yeah. you know, it, it, it again hits that like a contrasting um, piece at the end. Um, and then from there, then they were like, well, we can't leave it there. So then they kept going. And that's kind of how the song, my oh, understanding really? of it, it, evolved and grew and how it worked. So. Yeah, I find that very interesting. They started with Willow Farm yeah. and, and kind of worked forwards and backwards yeah. from there. And I wonder if the, you know, the how dare I be so beautiful part, which is very minimalist, you know, yeah. how like how did that get stuck in there? You know, that's that's a very interesting part of the 
quietness after the the merry men section and before willow farm that again you know takes you down and if you're again if you're in a crowd listening to this live it's not the type of thing that you can hopefully that you would be oh let's have a beer during this section it's like it does keep your attention because the quietness of it almost demands it of you so in terms of you know pieces that i'm with you i i think guaranteed eternal sanctuary man is okay Mm -hmm. i really i think my favorite is the piece i guess that follows after it iknikon and it's a con and their band of merry men Mm -hmm. again i just i love it it reminds me of can you tilly nico's liners (laughs) kind of bit where you know the the they're playing together and the energy that's with that piece um but of course, you know, and I, you know, the apocalypse in ninety in right. the end section. So everything after Willow Farm to the end right. is just phenomenal. Like and hearing it live through tribute bands and Steve Hackett's band mm-hmm. has has been playing it in recent tours. It's just you know it still gives you chills no matter how many times you hear this song it affects you in some way. I think. I, I think for me I'll mention this just about Steve's band was that. Ellie and I saw them do the Genesis Revisited show, and we were down in Buenos Aires when we saw the the last two shows. And finally, during Apocalypse, I was just like, I'm not going to count to nine during this. I can't. I'm just going to let myself be. And Check a chill pill, man. I know, I know. But that's sometimes that's how I, I, I listen to this stuff, even live, and I'm just like, oh, this is really good. And I'm enjoying myself with it, but I was just like, just listen. This band is able to put this out there. Again, they're not a carbon copy of Genesis. They're doing their their own version of this. Mm-hmm. And I'm not pretending that, oh, yeah, they're doing it just like Genesis did back in the day. It's like, oh, it's it's live and it's present. Absolutely. And so that's what I was able to enjoy from that. I mean, it's what classic, yeah. you know, we, we, yeah. people still go to symphonies exactly. and hear um, orchestral uh, renditions of songs <laughs> that were written hundreds, hundreds of years ago. Why wouldn't that change as music evolves, yeah. too? Like, we, that, that practice would still endure, I think. Yeah. This so. this was certainly, again, because of the lack of lyrics, this was the song that I probably made up my most alternate lyrics to. Yes, uh, that you just kind of, like, I think that the in, in Willow Farm, which you mentioned before, you know, there's the line, that's uh, mom and dad and good and bad and everything. And I thought good and bad was Gutenberg. Like, <laughs> like, and I thought it was something about, like, the printing press there. Because, again, you know, Churchill's mentioned and there's different mentions of historical figures. And I was just like, oh, Gutenberg's mentioned there. Okay. And that works. There's also a line in Willow Farm that says, like the fox on the rocks. That Mike said, no, it's the, the fox on the rocks. F-O-X, and like, yeah. Yeah, F-O-X. But it's F-O-C-K-S. Yeah, in the lyrics, it's not spelled fox. It's, it's F O C. And I was just, and we checked some different places to see if that was a corrected later on, and it wasn't. And I was like, okay, is that different? You know, there's a fox on the rocks on the on the cover, but it says F O C K X. Um, on the liner notes that we are consulting, it says fo- it's fox F O X. So it yeah. might have been a typo. That's that's one of my favorite drinks. Fox yeah. on the rocks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Little lime twist. It's awesome. <laughs> But yeah, it's and I think that the again I mentioned the two-word vocal delivery uh, of from Can Utility and the Coastliners of effortlessly clinging. I think the the words were. I think this has the best single word vocal delivery during the apocalypse section after the keyboard solo with reflect the full moon with reflect just both both Peter and Phil when they do that it's just the way they say reflect I'm like oh that kills me every time I hear it so. 
it's uh it's those moments mm-hmm. in a in a longer song i think you're able to at least for myself that's how i connect with this music there are these little moments within the greater whole well you know something big's gonna happen right. after it so yeah. you're waiting it's for it it's like you're way. anticipating <laughs> yeah the i think also there was a, a technical issue that uh, that they found that the when they recorded it i think they recorded the first half of Supper's Ready with one engineer and the second half with another engineer. And uh, they actually found that the second half was slightly out of tune with the uh, the first. It was actually after Willow Farm. On the old versions on album and CD, there's kind of an obvious, like, during the lawn part where there's a mellotron, like, before it gets into the acoustic part, there's... A, like a, a noticeable key change there that they actually back in 94 fixed that it was the one thing that they fixed on all the things because it was just kind of ra- a different thing and a, it was bothersome to them and they said they could have fixed a lot of things but they that was the only thing that they did i can understand why they would fix it because yeah. it is like a you know they, those kind of musical thorns live long in the side <laughs> yeah. but um I actually enjoy it because it is quite a jarring thing. It sort of right. it snaps your attention back right. into and the think, tune. I think as a listener, as a fan, you just think, "Oh, that it, it's if it's on the album, it's intentional." Yes. And I think that it doesn't it it doesn't bother the listener necessarily, but it does bother the artist. Yeah. And so it's a matter of then do you change that? The interesting thing is one of my college roommates who was also into Genesis had perfect pitch. And to one of the, he's one of those guys who can hear something once and play it on the piano. He never noticed that. Yeah. And I said, you never noticed that? And he's like, until you pointed that out, I never heard that yeah. change. Yeah. And I'm like, all right. I was like, that always, like, even as, again, semi-non-musician, I was like, yeah, I could hear that. But I, again, I thought it was kind of intentional. And now it's a little bit smoother. And there's, you know, if you have an old, one of the old CDs or the, an LP or whatever, you can tell that it's different. But yeah, it's... It's it's that kind of thing when, you know, this was the era when the bands would be touring in the middle of recording an album. Yeah. So they kind yeah. of dealt with that, you know. The equipment isn't as set up as it was. That section is a very interesting bit of arrangement because you've got to find a way to come out of Willow Farm and yeah. find your way towards Apocalypse <laughs> yes. in 9-8. Yeah. How do you transition between exactly. those two? And that little, that acoustic part leading up to that the da, 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 da. again a beautiful piece of music that is its own little song right in the middle of that and actually when we saw Hackett Acoustic in New York in 2009 2010 whenever that was he played that with his acoustic trio just that little piece of Supper's Ready and one thing that the studio version does you know the live version gets a lot of play but that one part uh, the studio version I love when Peter's flute then comes in and yeah. he joins on the melody for a while on the flute which you know doesn't really have the same weight when Tony's playing on his keyboard but when you know seeing it live and you know all of a sudden you know it's coming he picks up the flute you're like alright they're getting ready to go into you know yeah. <laughs> a really kick ass part exactly. I learned that piece on the flute actually oh. that was the first Genesis thing I played on the flute we'll have to have you perform yeah, it from the podcast cool. one sure. day sure <laughs> We'll have our own little uh, acoustic yeah. set in the middle of a show at one point. So It'd be interesting to what the parts that they've chosen to play after mm-hmm. they stop playing it in mm-hmm. its entirety. Because right. you know, obviously they did the Apocalypse 98 section. Mm-hmm. And then in the 97, 98, 98 tour, mm-hmm. they did an acoustic 
bit of Lover's Leap. Right. Which I wonder how many people in the audience were thinking they were going to get the whole 24 I know. minutes. I know. If you hear that in the beginning, you're like, oh. All of a sudden hear Ray Wilson saying, walking across, and you're like, yes. yes. All of a sudden it ends. You're like, wait, wait. Oh, there's, yeah. That's it? Yeah, that's that's wow. the horrible thing about medleys is, or, or bits of songs. Medley blue balls. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's rough. But the, I, I think that the, there's so much musically going on in here. You know, it's, it's different because it's, on a long track like this, it's so easy to focus on the vocals and and the different story that's told. That the music itself, you know, especially in Willow Farm and things like that, I'm like, oh, yeah, it's, the way that it was recorded and the performances. Again, Mike and Phil are great with this. Everybody's great on this. I think Steve's guitar during the Merry Men section is is incredibly loud and dirty, mm-hmm. which is that's not that type of style you hadn't heard in Genesis before. Right. You're hearing a lot of new things for the first time. I mean, everything is kind of new. They never really repeat themselves, but so many like techniques and arrangements and things. Um, you know, you could really see this was the the pinnacle of all mm-hmm. of like they've worked so hard for as a five piece, mm-hmm. you know, since, you know, they came together for nursery crime. It's just mm-hmm. coming to the forefront. I mean, how do you view it in the sort of like the terms of development of <clears throat> Genesis? You know, we were, I think it was certainly, a pl- uh, they were, they got to where they were going. Mm-hmm. Uh, whether they knew that they were going there or not, you know, they, they reached a pinnacle there where again, I think ev- after that, everything you do is compared to that until you get to the next stage where you feel you've made another quantum leap. So. But you know what I get the sense with this song? There are so much, so much, so much blood, sweat and tears went into this. Yeah. Um, I was just telling Simon earlier today, um, I was remembering hearing um, a live version they did of this, I think right either before or after the album came out. Okay. So it, you remember the, uh, there was a video, the Belgian TV special yeah, they did, yeah. and it's like a white room and they're mm-hmm. playing, you know, a couple songs. I've seen the video, but they actually, there's an audio recording of a longer set they did. Okay. And Supper's Ready was one of them. And when you listen to that older version, particularly like, <laughs> You know, in in comparison to versions you would hear, um, maybe the Shepperton shows, even in, for the Selling England, or even Leave Lawn Sucks uh, Seconds Out with Phil on lead vocals, um, you can just hear they are trying so hard not to fuck up. <laughs> they are playing so earnest, like you can feel it in yeah. in listening to it, and it's you know it's it's a bit jaunty. It, it you know they're they're trudging through it in a way, and it just reminds you again going back to what we said at the beginning they're 22 years yeah. old they are and still they, learning their instruments yeah. and you know they're they're you know you can hear in this the the maybe the their mind and hearts and whatever that comes out in in your creative abilities hasn't really caught up to their technical right, yes. uh abilities you're playing on uh, the, the leading edge of your, yeah, your i'm sorry their technical abilities yeah, haven't yeah, caught sure. up to to how they want to express it yeah. uh express themselves and uh so it, it's it's really a sweet thing if you can find it um mm-hmm. it's worth listening to just to kind of hear them really struggling through it you right. know in a way and you also wonder if, if they thought that the song, the piece, the whole piece was going to be what it is for the fans. Maybe yeah. they thought, oh, this is an experimental piece or they have, it has different moments, but maybe they never thought, oh, it's going to be an, an anthem, you know. Mm, an Tom, you wanted to... Yeah, it's funny when we were looking at how we're going to attack Supper's Ready. It's, it's almost one of those songs that you 
can't look too closely at with a magnifying glass because you'll see mm-hmm. some stuff which kind of doesn't make sense. Like <laughs> the different titles of the pieces like Ignaton and Itzikon and their Band of Merry Men or the delicious talents of Gavin Ratchet or Making Men's Feet. Aching Men's Feet. You what said, did I say? You said Making Men's Feet. Oh, Aching Men's Feet. Because <laughs> <laughs> Making Men's Feet just sounds ridiculous. Yeah, but Aching Men's Feet. <laughs> aching Men's Feet. <laughs> like Winston Churchill dressed in drag. He's like, oh. if you look so closely at it, you, it's almost like a George Seurat painting. You can't mm-hmm. get right up there with a magnifying glass and go, look yeah. at that dot, look at that dot. Like You kind of have to step back and look at the entire thing as a whole to appreciate the greatness of it. And, and I almost wonder if that was a way of kind of deflecting on the seriousness. Not the seriousness of it, because it's it's not a serious song, but just the importance of it. Trying to kind of say, hey, we wrote this 25-minute piece, but we also can kind of take the piss with ourselves, too, with calling things as short as eggs is eggs and things like that. So it's a way of putting it in perspective too which progressive rock fans can always use a dose of right well and also on the other side of this coin is that's why i think a lot of people who aren't progressive rock fans criticize this genre as being pretentious so you see this there's a song of six parts and it has all these weird titles and Mm -hmm. oh it's so pretentious and who do they think they are they're too clever for their own good i mean these are things i've heard from people commenting on i have one answer for that yeah fuck those people Absolutely. And I actually remember reading somewhere that, you know, a lot of times the reason for doing these different kind of subsections was because of publishing. And because if if it was played on the radio, you got paid for five songs versus one song. Uh, it was one of these things that if you gave something subsections, it was a certain way of, you know, it came out better in the royalties. So if you had a long song that you would only get paid once for, why not subtitle it and get paid appropriately for it? Not right. trying to cheat the system, but just working the system appropriately. People do that now with iTunes yeah, as well. Exactly. Like you can only uh, get, like you can only download, or you know, I guess any um, <laughs> thing like iTunes, where you just like down, you can download this one song, but you have to buy the whole album because it's it's sure. over a certain you know right. length of time. So yeah. So well, this this track ends with. You know, what people often call the New New Jerusalem section, uh, which has brought me to tears at times. And I could say that as a, you know, somebody who's comfortable with my Genesis love. So (laughs) I'm going to cry now. So, but the. It's only because I'm standing on your foot. Yeah, exactly. So, but that has. has an aching man's foot. Exactly. (laughs) It all ties together. But, but it's. It's again, I think this is the reason why a lot of people love this band because it was able to connect with people emotionally. Mm-hmm. And again, you know, there's there's a lot of imagery at the end. It's not about something, it's just about the feel <laughs> of something. And Gabriel and when Phil does it too, you know, they're singing their hearts out with this. Mm-hmm. And it's after such, you know, an intensely emotional part with, you know, the keyboard solo and apocalypse and coming towards the end vocal section. It's a, it's a band that can do, do no wrong at that stage. The, the part that gets me is that line right before the last section, now I'm back again and baby's going to work out fine. Like that part, you're just like, it kind of has that swelling moment and you're just like, all right, everything is going to work out fine. And it goes to the last part and it just grabs you from that point on. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the lyrics and especially Hackett's solo yeah. through, this, through this end section is gorgeous but the whole lead up to to this is is you know it's an incredibly dissonant or i should say sort of like minor 
Rocky, Apocalypse in 9-8 is a, a very, I mean, it, the drumming, I mean I, I mean, I think there's a lot of great drumming in, in the whole of the sort of like the Genesis discography, but there is just something that, about what Phil does on, on this track, which just, it, it is a, it's sort of like another level of class as yeah. far as I'm concerned, I mean. And it's a, it's, it can be, it's a little bit ropey, especially at the start when they're sort of settling into the rhythm. Mm-hmm. You can hear it, it does like, it is a little bit rickety, but as Phil starts extemporising on, the, on the, yes. the timing of the beat, you just think, what on earth is going on in that man's brain? It's right. just like, he must have sort of like, godlike metronomic thing to be, the whole band to be able to hold on to that central spine. Yes. And, and but yet still sort of like play around with the beat. Yeah, because you've got Stephen Might kind of doing the, the riff throughout the, the throughout the solo and you know, Phil starting to go crazy with it, which gets even crazier on the live versions right. because they once they play it in, they know how to do this. They they're com- they're comfortable with this crazy 9/8 type of thing. And and to me it's that part when after kind of the on the album the animal sound effects and when it goes gets into the kind of the build up to the six 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 i was i think again the first time i heard this i was like what is going on here what what is it can't it can't be as good as what's happening right now oh oh my god it's fucking better than what was just happening and it's just like you know as a listener i'm like if you don't like that i don't know if we can be friends (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> because we obviously just look at the world different ways and again they were 22 years old yeah yeah, yeah. when they, I was 22 I was clueless yeah. I'm still clueless but like right and they went for it they they just said you know let's do this and it it worked it worked musically it looked, worked lyrically and you know sometimes you get to the end of these 20 minute songs and you're like eh, what goes on here but they knew how to end it and they never did another one after it you know, yeah. some bands, yes, started doing these songs like they were going out of style. And it was like, you know, and they were good. But this was kind of like saying, you know, we're not going to do something that compares to Supper's Ready. There was a talk during Duke about having that Duke suite. But they actually didn't do it because they didn't want it to be compared to Supper's Ready. I mean, this I is a long song that doesn't feel like, like a long right. song. Yeah, you're like, right. you don't, yeah. like, when it ends, you're like, that was 25 minutes yeah. or whatever, you know, of my life. Of, yeah. I want... I want to do that again. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I don't want to back. I want to I give more, more of myself exactly, to it. So. Exactly. With the nine, the nine eighth section, people are often compare the seconds out version versus mm-hmm. the studio. But I think with the nine, the nine eighth section, you also have to bring in the invisible touch tour yeah. version. I mean, that just kicks ass on the on the King oh, Biscuit yeah. Flower Hour. King I mean, I've listened to that. I don't know that version of nine eighth maybe more than the studio yeah. version. And there's a version actually on YouTube. There's a there's a filmed version from the from the crowd. Somebody with the camcorder, maybe from a Detroit show or something. That is again the band going for it. And you know this is this is a show that people come to, and, and probably eighty percent of the crowd didn't know anything from Genesis before nineteen eighty two. And there, because you know, maybe combining it with the light show that helps kind of sell the, the things to people, people are going nuts for this, and it, it really works. And I, I had a bootleg back in the day, and still have it somewhere on tape, that was from one of the Philadelphia shows. Where when it gets to the hey, babe, with your garden eyes so blue, everybody is singing along with that. And I'm like, okay, again, Philly was a Genesis town, so people definitely knew the history of it, 
but it was great hearing an arena full of 10 to 20,000 people singing along with this song that probably the band might have thought, oh, people might not know this, so let's introduce it to them. Fantastic stuff. I can't get enough of this track. The one thing that I will say is slightly strange (laughs) is this is the only song that I think they did around this era era with a fade out. Yeah. When you consider that this is an epic song, yeah. and they do the fade out live. Yes, exactly. Yeah. It's still the same thing, you yeah. know. And so that it's not a case. I often say that a fade is a lazy thing to do, right. but the very fact that they they did it live indicates to me that that was part of the That's arrangement. Absolutely. I always view that with this track. <laughs> That it just goes on forever. Yeah, like they're it's walking away in the yeah. distance. Like it's just yeah. you know, yeah. like kind of how they left the stage at the dance. end of the show, you know, yeah. and didn't come back for an encore. It just yeah. keeps continuing. So, yeah. I'm still trying to learn how to air drum to the sec the nine eight apocalypse <laughs> section. It's tough. Um, oh, I, I have that on my 20- resume. Or something. I can yeah, do. see, <laughs> it's been tw- over twenty years, and I'm still learning. So yeah. one day I'll get it. <laughs> There's great bits of drum business in that tr- in that track, and and just you know, just th- those that nine eight part. You know, just if you once you start for me, once you start counting it in your head, it's hard to get out of that. And it's you know Tony's keyboards fit in with that fantastic. It's that never quite brought me to tears, but it it was just like I can't. It get, doesn't get better than this. And then, like I said, it does. Yeah. <laughs> so it's it's fantastic. I, I could understand why Tony was pissed when you know he's like Gabriel sang over you know the with the sit sit sits part you know. But really, if he had just ended that solo with him holding those chords over that part, it wouldn't have had the emotional punch that the vocals right. coming in there do. I think it just goes to show that uh, being sometimes being a bit bloody-minded does pay dividends. Yes. <laughs> I mean, I don't think there would be many other members of, of Genesis that would have stood up to Tony Banks right. yeah. when it comes yeah. to this, but Peter stood his ground. Right. And, and to Tony's credit, he realised. Yes. He said, this is actually really right. good. Anything else on stuff? We, we could talk about Suffers Ready yeah. forever, <laughs> but we know that we have to move forward. There's one thing that I, yes. I will say which might cause some consternation but um and i will ask every single member of mm-hmm. the of, of the tabletop group here what they think of this live version studio version live i think i'd have to if i were going to enjoy and sit down and listen to it i'd probably have to go with the live version and we're talking the seconds out live oh, okay. version here we? Uh, i will admit i will put the caveat that i heard the live version the seconds out version first yes. and that's obviously that it's affects, always gonna it's yeah. always gonna affect my decision but i'm with you i think the the seconds out version with with phil singing that's my definitive version mm-hmm. i yeah i heard the i heard the foxtrot the album version first um but I do have to agree with everybody else. The <laughs> the seconds out version to yeah. me is, yeah. you know, I I if I had a choice, yeah. if I wanted to listen to Supper's Ready, yeah. I would put no on. disrespect to Peter yeah, or anything. I, and I think like for me the 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 studio version has has its place. Well, the for example, the backing vocals are great on it. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot more vocal arrangement right. on the studio version. Yeah, but where I said before that you know. Get Him Out by Friday seems to really fit Gabriel's voice. There are certain parts in Supper's Ready that 
don't fit his voice. Mm-hmm. Uh, and whether it was a too high a key for him or whatever, it's just, it makes it a little bit of the, oh, Gabriel, yeah. you know, voice. As, during the New Jerusalem section where he should be able to power that out, it feels like he's straining for it a bit. Mm-hmm. And that's a slight tick on it. So, But that doesn't mean it's horrible. It's just, you know, that's how it is. Now, I have a question for the table, too. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think that doing Supper's Ready, like Peter and Phil would sh- split the, the parts of the song? Some parts are sung by Phil and some parts by Peter. Mm-hmm. Even the like if they had done that back in the day, Back in mean? the day, yeah, like the studio version. Like, like they sh- they split it up live. Yeah, yeah. That would have been yeah. interesting to no. see. I, I I think that would have worked really well. Did they did they do that on the Six of the Best concert? No, it was uh, all Peter. Okay. Yeah. I mean, well, Phil doing backing vocals, I think, but not. Um, the, he did backing vocals the way that he did for um, you know back when Peter was in the band for that. So doubling up on Lover's Leap, probably some different sections in there. But um. But no, they didn't. He did like no. Phil didn't sing the apocalypse section okay. at all. Right. I, I I think I think Gabriel would have uh, Willow Farm to me like that's his. Yes. That I would give that to him if yeah. I was giving up the parts. <laughs> all right. I would give Lover's Leap to Phil. Okay. Um, <laughs> but I don't know about the rest. It, it could go either way. I think yeah. you know because they both bring something very different um, yeah. to to those parts. But those are two like. Yeah, Phil can do the, the softer lover's leap parts mm-hmm. and then, you know, the crazy surreal. That's 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 yeah. Gabriel's uh wheelhouse there. Well, we I think we we all picked to listen to. We'd pick we picked the stu- uh seconds out yeah. version. Yeah. If you were to go back in time to see them perform it a live version of it, which era would you go see them perform it in? <laughs> I think I've stumped the tabletop. Do I? Can I only choose? one? You can only choose one. Yeah. Uh, I, what I, I, I don't get me wrong. I think the definitive version is Phil's version, but I'd see Gabriel singing it. Yeah. I would want to see. I would want to see on the Selling England tour. Yeah. I'd want yeah. to see that on a good night. And <laughs> because again, so hearing some bootlegs, you know, Gabriel's vocals even then could be a little bit kind of pitchy on on that. Um, yeah. But yeah, but on a good night to see him singing his heart out with that, I, I couldn't go wrong there. But I would also love to see either the 77 version for Seconds Out or the 82 version on the Three Sides Live tour. Uh, if we were just going to see Supper's Ready, yeah. <laughs> I would do the Gabriel because I, you know, yeah. the Gabriel. But if it was like, if I had to choose a concert to go to sure. between the two, like this, the 73 show, yeah. I would do the 77 show. It would be yeah, worth seeing Gabriel show. just for that little yeah. um, Rick Astley dance he does. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, I don't know. And the costume changes and the lighting. And, yeah. and again, seeing them, because like I said, you know, earlier, they really had to work hard to pull this song off. Yeah. And, you know, I don't know. I think I would love to see that. I'd love to see them throw themselves into the song that I think they really had to do. Excellent. Well, we're at that stage of the episode where we're going to examine Tom's poll. Tom shows you his poll. Let's take a look. Oh, we're going to say our favorite song first. Oh, right? yes. yes. Okay, well, we'll go to that. All right, well, how about we go around and... Uh, Say which is our favorite track. <sighs> you know, for me, what did I, I think I voted for Supper's Ready and I will stick with Supper's Ready. I think me too, Supper's Ready. Watcher. Mm. Can Utility and the Coastliners. Excellent. I think I put Watcher. So it's a, a split between Watcher and uh, mm-hmm. 
And stuff is ready. Yeah. Okay. And I'm the outlier as usual. <laughs> <laughs> well, here's Let's... my poll. Well, uh, it's probably no surprise. The winner was a massive 60% of the vote, which was 10 times more, which was six times more than the second place. <laughs> Supper's ready. I think this is the first time we've had a track get more than 50% on a poll. This was probably poll. the highest. Wow. So it's taken more than half your poll. All right. <laughs> Actually, oh, the Brazilian. <laughs> and actually, the, this I was thinking about this too. Like if, if this poll had been done when people first got into the band and went back and discovered this album, I think the results would probably be a lot different sure. because the number two track with 20% of the vote was Can Utility in the Coastline. Oh. All right, there you go. Which I think it's one of those where, as I said, if you first got into this band, you might automatically go to Supper's Ready and yeah. watch her and yeah. then maybe kind of work your way down. And after you've spent enough time with this record, you kind of yeah. visit tracks which aren't played as much i have to say that pleases me no end it's always nice to see the deep cuts getting yeah. getting a sort of sure. you know getting a, a, a good shout out representing yeah <laughs> number three with 10 percent of the vote was watcher of the skies uh then the others were kind of like in one two and three percent with uh get them out by friday with three percent and then with two percent was timetable and last place was Horizons, but I think that's only because people were going for the mega tracks. Right, that's it. that's its own unique track. I think it's kind of hard to compare it to the rest. So, and it's in some ways, it's I've always believed that it was it goes hand in hand with Supper's oh, Ready, exactly. doesn't it? You know, I mean, and I think it was Steve even said on some documentary that I think a lot of people thought it was the the intro yeah, to Supper's Ready, yeah, like and that's what we were saying earlier about how the song just starts off with the vocals. Well, yeah. We forgot yeah, well, how quickly we right. forgot there was like two and a half minutes yeah. of uh, instrumental piece preceding and, it. And again, this, this is an album that there's not a bad song on this album. No. So I think that you know even songs getting you know the the one or two or three percent. They're still fine, yeah. you know. It's just that you know, we it'd be nice to have a vote for like the second favorite song at some point and see kind of how that mixes things up a bit. Right? Yeah, exactly. Take that out and see what what, what that, <laughs> that would be say. a short album. Wouldn't <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's more of an EP it's at that stage. So, yeah. well, you've taken another hour or two out of your life to listen to our podcast. We really appreciate that. It was actually suggested uh, by a fan to us that, you know, maybe we should recommend the people listen to the album before they listen to the podcast. We know some people have also said that they go back and listen to the album after they listen to, you know, our podcast and say, oh, that was good about Wind and Wuthering. Let me listen to that again. But if you listen to it beforehand, it gives you some context for everything. It refreshes your memory about the, the music in a different way. So do whatever you want, really. Can I just make one other quick yes. mention? Uh, this might sound a little bit obvious, but uh, the words that have been stated during this podcast are exactly just that. They are opinions. <laughs> um, yeah. So if you don't agree with us, that's fine. Right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, let us know. Write yeah. to us on Facebook, on Twitter, on you know, uh, on our website. We actually got a lot of comments on our website uh, this time around when we put the poll up. Because people were, you know, giving their their opinions already, which I think is which great. Which is great, yeah. So, that's that's guys. why we do this. So, yeah, exactly. you know, audience participation. Yeah. So yeah. thank you for your input. Thank the tabletop for all your input, of course. So this is Mike Lord signing off. This is Ellie signing off. This is Simon signing off. This is Stacy. This is Tom signing off. And we'll see you next time with whatever we decide to cover next time. Thanks. To get 
Thank you for listening to this episode of Tabletop Genesis. Archived episodes can be found at tabletopgenesis.com, along with updates, polls, and various other podcast-related news. You can also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes to have the shows automatically and magically downloaded to your computer when we post new episodes. To keep up with all the Tabletop Genesis activity, follow us on Twitter at Genesis Tabletop. You can like us on Facebook by searching for Tabletop Genesis. And you can also email us directly at genesistabletop at gmail.com. Let us know what you think of the podcast or send us questions we can address on future episodes.